0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graeme Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Abdu Salam. This is a really special one for me. Abdu is someone who I've known for a long time. I lived with Abdu in Uganda in 2003. We were both volunteers on a program called SPW Student Partnerships Worldwide. Uh, It's changed his name more recently to Restless Development, but basically we were teaching in a very rural primary school and uh, teaching HIV AIDS education to the kids and running testing health days for Uh, the community and various other things. Uh, So it was a long time ago, 2003. A whole bunch of us have kept in touch. And uh, Abdu and I have, you know, he's been over to the UK a couple of times now. And I've been over there to Kampala and stayed with him there. And just a really inspiring guy. So I was, when I found out that he was not only coming over to the UK, but had a bit of time one of the things I said to him is, hey, we need to get you on the podcast. We need to do that. So we had a great time uh, up in Nottingham. He went to pick up his uh, master's degree. So he went to his graduation ceremony. Really really quite strange because uh, the first time he saw his university campus was the day of his graduation and his family couldn't travel. So I became his surrogate dad for the day and we had a a nice celebratory lunch and a, a fun train ride from Brighton up to Nottingham and back. Uh, yeah, really fun. And um, yeah, you may well have noticed if you're one of those very eagle-eyed, eagle-ears, completist people that uh, the last episode of Beyond Busy was three weeks ago. Um, usually these go out every two weeks, but I've just been on a bit of a mad uh, road trip for the last couple of weeks. So I was at the Waymad Festival, which was really great to my little boy and uh yeah the the weather forecast was terrible for the whole weekend but we kind of got away with it the the sunday was a mud bath but the rest of it we sort of got away with uh and it was really great uh shout out to speech to bell by the way who was just incredible i really want to get speech to bell on beyond busy for sure uh then went to ireland had a really great time in the south of ireland around cork uh if you've not if you've been around there or if you're going around uh anywhere near cork go to the photo wildlife park like really stunning really lovely place uh, had a great time there and then went to Edinburgh Festival. And, like, I haven't been to Edinburgh for about five or six years. And I always say to people, when people, you know, when you're in the pub and you're just sort of talking about the Edinburgh Festival, I always say, I've never heard anyone come away from Edinburgh saying, oh, that wasn't quite as good as I thought it was going to be. And do you know what? I went back to the Edinburgh Festival. and I was like, I couldn't believe how good it was. It was like I'd even forgotten because I'd been away for five or six years. How mind-blowingly exciting the edinburgh festival is so i saw some amazing stuff there uh shout out to rachel paris and the maydays and uh heather and liz who've been on this podcast before as well uh so lots of people who are friends of of think productive and of beyond busy and uh Casey uh, shoot as well uh, part of the maydays a really great uh show that she did as well called uh, shoot the unromantic really cool Uh, So yeah, I had a really great time up at the Edinburgh Festival and then came back and I'm now sort of playing catch up a little bit. So we're a week uh, behind where I'd have liked us to be with Beyond Busy. But hey, there you go. That happens sometimes. I ain't going to bust my balls over. it. It's fine. So let's get into this conversation. So I'm recording a little intro here in my shed in Brighton. And coincidentally, that's exactly where we were for this conversation with Abdu. So this is from about three or four weeks ago. This is me sitting down with Abdu, wais Right, I'm here in the shed in Brighton. Very rainy. What are we today? Wednesday. Wednesday. I'm struggling with the days of the week because I'm about to go off on this trip to Waymad Festival and everything else and been doing lots of uh, pre-trip packing and planning and everything today, Uh, but we're in my shed in Brighton and I'm with Abdu, how are you doing?
1: Very good, Graham.
0: Uh, so, Abdu, uh, Mr. Weiswa Abdu Salam, <laughs> to give you a full name. Uh, we've known each other, I was thinking about this earlier, we've known each other for like 15 years. Yeah. That feels crazy, it's
1: right? It's crazy, time, can run. It, it really. feels
0: really crazy. Um, and you're here from Uganda, which is how we met originally. I, I spent a year uh, living in Uganda and actually living with Abdu in 2003 and um, yeah you're here on your second visit to London that's true so tell me about the current trip what what's uh, what brought you to London and, and the UK this time
1: yeah this time round I came to basically uh, attend a meeting a Commonwealth Telecommunication Organisation meeting uh, the Commonwealth Telecommunication Organisation is a, a research non-charitable non-charita- organisation in the UK that brings together Regulators and operators in the telecommunication sector all, from all across the Commonwealth. Right. So they organized training, research, and uh, capacity building for Commonwealth telecommunication uh, regulators and operators. And so we had uh, a roundtable discussion. Uh, from 17 to 21st. Yeah. So I came to attend that uh, discussion on behalf of my organisation.
0: Cool. And also, yeah. we went to your graduation.
1: Yeah, it also coincided with my graduation from Nottingham Trent. Yeah. Uh, so
0: I was your dad for the graduation ceremony, yeah, which they, was lovely. <laughs> I really had a good time.
1: You felt good as a father. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt happy as a son. <laughs> it was good.
0: Yeah, it's good. And it was really good. Uh, so it's always fun when you're here in the UK to kind of see... London and see the UK from the eyes of someone who just comes from somewhere completely different right like I spent a lot of time in in Uganda obviously and like you know I have that same kind of seeing Uganda through the eyes of an English person or whatever but like it's always fun some of the things that you uh, you know that you sort of compare or come up with and the thing when we got to Nottingham was you said like
1: Oh, I'm glad it's not a corridor. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> you know, having studied online, yeah, I already had this fear that uh, probably the university I chose is a small corridor uh, institution <laughs> that probably is not well uh, recognised. So yes, of course, sometimes we trust the internet. Yeah. And indeed, that's exactly what I did because I looked at the ranking of Nottingham Trent. And it appeared impressive. Yeah. And based on that faith alone, I enrolled for a master's degree for two years. Yeah. So suddenly coming for graduation uh, was a big moment for me because it gave me the chance to come and confirm exactly whether I had made the right choice. Yeah. But also to confirm that I was not the only graduate. So now <laughs> we had it would be to go to a place, you think you've come for graduation all the way from Uganda, and then you only find some person. Purporting to be the vice chancellor in a uh. small room, <laughs> that would be very, very disappointing. Happen? Some, yeah, some freak universities, of course, do Not that, really. yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, I didn't expect that in the UK, yeah. The UK has attained global reputation so much that any qualification attained from a UK university or institution yeah. is almost taken to be legitimate and the people will always take it as
0: a, Yeah, and I think a, Nottingham Trent, because uh, you were in the law school, and we'll come on to law uh, later, but it seems like it's really doing well on those programmes, right? Like he was listing off all these statistics where it's in the top ten in the country and all that stuff. So I think not only did you make a good choice, you made a, a very good choice.
1: <laughs> that's very to good. To study
0: a master's there. Um, and so when we first met, uh, when we first met, 15 or so years ago I was about 24 I think and I was doing basic, we, basically we were doing a sort of student gap year um, sort of program where most of the people doing that program were 18 I think you were 18
1: yes I was so. 18 mm.
0: uh, so you were 18 we were just waiting on your A-level results that's Do you remember? true that's true and so tell me about like who you were at that point so you often use the phrase a small boy from Mayugi.
1: Uh, that is true. To
0: describe,
1: oh you know, my. your
0: background and where you've come from and stuff. But so when we met, when you were eighteen, tell me like who you were at that point, just so people can kind of get an idea of.
1: Yeah, at that your time background. I was just a small young man, eighteen years from a small village in Mayuge. Mayuge is a very small district in Uganda, and uh, it's actually little known. Uh, because uh, there's not so much there. Yeah. It's largely peasantry community. Uh, it's not one of those affluent city-like towns in Uganda. Did you say
0: peasantry community. Yeah, that's Is true. That, okay, so that's yeah. like people who are living off the land. Off the land. They cultivating. have their sort of small holdings, so, and they're growing food and stuff.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So and also the schools that go to for A level and even O level, we are all small. Schools, So yeah. I, I looked at myself as a small little boy from yoga really. Yeah. And in fact, right from the time when I joined SP Diorio as a volunteer, I looked at it as a, an opportunity for me to, to work and sit together with people from other good schools. Mm. Because uh, before that, I mean, I'd not been in a position where I would sit on the same table with people from these leading schools in Kampala, right, okay. the King's College of Budo, yeah. the Kia College of Budo, where boutique where Lester, for example, went. Yeah, so, so our
0: friend Lester, who so we lived together basically with uh, me and you, and uh, then uh, Lester, Lester was also from Uganda, and Olivia yeah. was also from the UK. So it was like four of us. That's true. but yeah, so Lester and quite a few of the other kids on that program had very wealthy parents. They well, went to good well. schools. They were kind of slightly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like social, like, I was going to say social climbers, but th- that's wrong. Like, you were the one who was doing the social climbing, right? Getting yeah, into different true. circles. But they were, they were. I suppose, in that slightly more elite in Uganda kind of um, environments and stuff. That's true. Um, but you were, like, the small boy from Yugi. And then with your A-levels, so I remember you getting your A-levels in, like, just beaming. For, like, your whole face had this huge smile when you, like, were getting your results and stuff. So you having done really well in that was a big sort of turning point for you. It was in, actually in big. Life. It
1: was a big turning point because uh, at that time I remember my school had been in existence for about uh, about 10 years but I'd never Was oh, that all? Yeah, okay. but I'd wow. never produced a national candidate at in a national uh, examination.
0: And what's a national candidate? National
1: candidate is, candidate is one like who is actually seen as amongst the top say, 50 students in the whole country. Okay. So when the results were released, I was the best in the district. Mm. Yet the district has so many big schools, many competitive schools, and at, at that point nobody expected Igang Progressive to produce the best student in the in the district, yeah. but also a student with grades that could actually make him rank 24th in the whole country. So you rank
0: twenty fourth in the whole country, and in Uganda that's a big deal it's because big deal. what that means is you get your university uh, like paid for on a scholarship.
1: Basically. That's where you compete for the government scholarship yeah. to study a course of your choice. Unfortunately, again for me is that because of my small background from that school, yeah, uh, the teachers didn't believe that any of us could actually perform and yeah. compete for these uh, good courses like law. Personally, I always had interest in becoming a lawyer. But then when we were filling the forms for university choices, I told one of my teachers that I needed law. And the teacher, Frank Kalle, told me, you don't waste your choice. You can't qualify for law. Mm. Nobody can get law from this school. Right, so okay. I didn't apply for law. Wow. I ended up making urban planning my first choice. And uh, so it yeah. turned out that after the results, I, I had very good grades beyond yeah. the course I'd actually asked for at Makerere University. And the government has a very strict policy you can only be given a course that you applied for. So if you didn't apply for law, however much you had the qualification for law, they wouldn't give you law in government. Mm. So I had two choices, either to go with urban planning or choose to study law on private. But of course, my parents could not afford uh, paying for my law education because law is quite expensive and it's a four-year course. So at that point, I was left in a predicament Luckily, again through interacting with people, somebody led me to one of the academic registrars at Makerere University, and after fronting him with my challenge, he said, mm, "At Makerere, he could not offer me any solution." So
0: Makerere is for uh, those of you non non Ugandans listening. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do a lot of the kind of filling in. So Makerere is basically sort of like Oxford or Cambridge. Yes, so like it's like Cambridge the best university, in, university in Uganda. So you went there, and you'd you'd applied to do urban planning. Urban planning. But then you're there with, you know, one of the, the deans there saying like, okay, so how do I get to do law?
1: Yeah. That's it. So I met him, and after explain to him, show him my results, he was impressed and said, but it's unfortunately Maceris rules are mm. so strict that they cannot give me law yeah. on government because that would mean them looking for somebody who has dropped out of law. Okay. So i yeah. to create a slot for me. And that is almost uh, unexpected. So yeah, he told me about the opportunity to apply for a very competitive scholarship called the Inter-University Council of East Africa Scholarship, which is an exchange program where students from across East Africa are exchanged between universities. So Uganda would send students to Tanzania. Tanzania would take students to Uganda. Right. So in Uganda at that time, for law, the government could pick four students and mm. send them to the asylum to study law. It was very, very competitive. I remember we were about 250 applicants. Wow. And they only needed four people. So, But they just encouraged me that today, considering your grades, yeah. you stand higher chances. Yeah. And indeed, I applied, and uh, I managed to go through the competition, and I was among the best, among the four people that was selected for the course.
0: So that all happened while we were living together. Yeah, and so, mm. And the funny thing was, I remember... When So to the programme SPW that we were working on, uh, we were given uh, basically uh, 60,000 shillings 60, a month, 000, uh, yeah. which in UK pounds is about 20 or 25 pounds at the time. And that was our entire budget to live on. That was our transport. That was for our the food whole month. for the whole month. <laughs> and I remember, do you remember at one point, me and Olivia, I think it was, had gone down into the town to do some shopping. And we'd come back and we'd bought spaghetti, macrons. And um, do you remember you being really stressed that we'd bought macrons because they were a lot more expensive than buying Motoki? And we were doing this system where everyone was putting in the same money.
1: money. That is true.
0: And we just thought, hey, surprise, we've got different food. We were really excited that we were going to have something new and different to eat. And you were the opposite of that. You were kind of really stressed.
1: Well, I was worried that uh, one spaghetti was expensive. And uh, I remember that 60,000 for me wasn't just money meant yeah. for me to use for feeding, but I would also save part of it to send back home.
0: So, even this small amount of money, 60,000 shillings, you were trying to, to save maybe 20,000 uh-huh. every month and send that back to the village? And send
1: that back home to my parents, but also I would use it to tra- for transport. Because yeah. I remember when the process leading to my application to Dar Salaam, I used to move a lot to Kampala. Yeah. So I would have to incur transport costs and nobody would provide me with that transport. So I would have yeah. to save off the 60,000 yeah. to get enough money. So you had money, money to,
0: to just go and attend the, the meetings and the that, know, application that, process that, That's stuff, true, yeah. yeah. Um, so money was a really tight thing. It was. Uh, for you. And I think, you know, we might talk about uh, how that has changed and how it's similar now. But in terms of at that point in time, That must have been quite a scary thing, the idea of, okay, money's really, really tight and now I'm applying to a university that's in another country and there's going to be, if you think travel costs to get to Kampala are a lot, then it's going to be a lot more than that to get a a bus all the way to Dar es Salaam, um, which takes about, was it take, about 30 hours or something? 30 hours on (laughs) the road. (laughs) So it's quite an expensive Of course,
1: the wealthy would take a plane
0: for about
1: $500 and in uh, 45 minutes they would be in Dar es Salaam. Yeah. So some students actually would take a plan. Oh really? Okay. And uh,
0: but so that must have been quite a daunting thing, being the small boy from Muyugi, and then suddenly, okay, now I'm going to go to Dar es Salaam and study there for three years and
1: stuff. That's actually it was scary, especially to my parents, because you know in Uganda there is also some bit of uh, fear that uh, let me say maybe at that time more that uh, in Dar es Salaam there is a lot of witchcraft. To someone who has not been to be into Africa. <laughs> okay. uh, I
0: think you'll be the first person to discuss witchcraft on Beyond Busy, which is Oh, is that's true.
1: In uh, <laughs> you know, to someone who has not been to be into Africa, witchcraft is something that yeah. you maybe you've not heard about. But witchcraft is basically where people uh, a practice where people engage into uh, traditional uh, uh predictions mm. and sometimes purport to, to prescribe medicine yeah. for people's problems and uh, there is a general feeling that in salaam because it is a coastal town there are so many traditional medicine men there are many witch doctors
0: why but, because it's a coastal town because I it's a
1: coastal that. town because there is a belief that uh, there are spirits that spirits live off the ocean oh, right, okay. and so when we were growing up, we used to hear about many stories okay. of uh, those spirits mm. attacking people in the es right. in Mombasa, around the ocean. It's a common yeah. belief around the es Salaam, actually, up to now. Interesting. So, when I told my parents that I was going to the es Salaam, my mother was at first scared. So, <laughs> what are you going to do in Dar the es There are spirits there. There, are, there is witchcraft. How will you survive? You're just yeah. a young boy here. No, you don't know anybody in the es Salaam. How will you make it? But of course, for me, I was uh, confident in myself. I believed everything was happening for good reason. And I told them, no, I'll handle Yeah. We are going there, many people, and I don't think anything will be stronger than my spirit to, yeah. to, 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 to actually overcome and uh, do what I'm supposed to do. And I, I think what the most important thing for me was that uh, amidst all that, in my mind, I was very clear-minded that I'm going to Daslam. Daslam is one of the leading law schools in Eastern Central Africa. Mm. In fact, it is the oldest law school in Eastern Central Africa. Okay. And because of that, I believed it was a honor for me to go to Salaam. So I took it as a, as, as a honor. Mm. So all these fears didn't work against me. Yeah. In my mind, I was very clear, I'm going to Daslam, I'll reach there, I'll survive, I'll achieve my objective and I will succeed. That is yeah, it. Yeah, and indeed, yeah. that spirit gave me a lot of courage. So much that when I go to the salam, it seemed home. It became home. I was very comfortable. I had so many friends. Yeah. I got work to do. I, I mean, like Esther, you shine anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's one thing that I mean. I, I, I think that probably comes through really clearly just in that story. But that's something that's a real theme with you, and something that I've always really admired with you is that you. Uh, just have a real determination about what you want to do. And you also often have to... You've had to operate without really having a safety net. Like, I was in Uganda, obviously a longer, you know, much further away from home than you were, but I had savings that if something went wrong financially, I could fall back on. I remember we were in... um, So I came to visit you when you were in Dar es Salaam, and then we went to Zanzibar
1: together. Yeah, I remember.
0: And you were carrying... Uh, you were carrying some money for somebody to buy a stereo. Do you remember this?
1: <laughs> That's right. Do you remember? I remember.
0: And you were buying. You were carrying all this money to buy a stereo. I think it was like $200 or something. And then it got stolen from the room That's where true. you were staying. And I just remember the look on your face that next day of like, shit, like I've just, that was all the money that I had. I now have to pay this guy back and, uh, you know, how, how does that happen? And there was like, and I
1: think me and Chaz gave you the money to I it. Yeah, actually, I, 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 I remember that yeah. incident. I but, I,
0: but there's been quite a few things like that where it's like... I mean, I also remember when we were in the village, we'd often go off during the weekend and go meet up with people in town and you were, you know, very steely determination. OK, I'm staying in the village for the weekend. I don't want to spend the...
1: My little money. Six
0: pounds or whatever to get down to the town and then money for a hotel or whatever. <laughs> So you would just stay in the village the whole weekend and just kind of do nothing, but like that was, you know you were there for a very specific purpose and reason, which was to do the program, but also to send money home, and you were just kind of really sticking to that kind of, that kind of thing. So it just kind of feels like you've always had this very single-minded attitude to whatever you want to achieve. Mm, it's actually that right.
1: It's not actually being single-minded, but it's about knowing who you are, yeah and not going by what I would call the bandwagon. Yeah. For me, I believe that even if we are a hundred of us in one place, I must look at myself as Salam from Mayuge. <laughs> so I will not be easily taken up by what it is that I've been exposed to. Yeah. So I always remember I'm here for a purpose. For me, I need to save money. I need to achieve this. So I will not easily be taken up by the group.
0: And I think, I don't know whether you think this is the same in Uganda, but I think in England it's very easy to be... Distracted, or to to sort of go with the flow, go with the crowd, That's and it's true. more difficult to stand out and be determinedly doing your thing or being single-minded or whatever you want to call that. Like, yeah. is that the same in Uganda? Would you would you say that it's it's exactly. very easy to be distracted from your goals and what you're. Trying it's to very
1: easy to be distracted, especially when you're still young, mm. uh, unless you have that maturity in you as a person, yeah. and it all starts with you knowing who you are. Uh, many young people, uh, they don't understand who exactly they are. They try to compare themselves to everybody around them. Yeah. So you find somebody, you know very well that your father or mother is a peasant in the village. You have a, a roommate or a colleague at work whose father is a minister or a businessman yeah. with money. You want to live the same lifestyle overnight. That can't happen. <laughs> you must remember your roots. Yeah. So if you know okay. my father has money... He can buy me a car. you can buy me a very expensive phone. You can do it. But for me, because I know that I have to friend for myself yeah. and even save some for my people who mm. depend on me, I must live within my means. So yeah. I try to balance that, but also try to do that in a way that does not in, any, in directly compromise my ability to enjoy i have yeah, fun yeah, but i yeah. try to limit how much i can spend on fun i'll try to be <laughs> you have as fun, simple but you limit your fun i limit you my <laughs> fun so if i have to go to a club where i'll pay 100 pounds or walk to a, at a beach where i'll pay nothing
0: yeah
1: uh, i mean i'll settle for this yeah. because maybe the happiness and fun is is what you make it to be mm. it's what you make it to be
0: and when you're saying that you have to know who you are mm. so part of that is as you described the, the financial capabilities financial background whatever is but, there more to it than that is it, is, it, is it also about character and values And
1: I, I think it's both uh, your financial background but also your values mm. for example I think all the years we've lived together you know me as someone who doesn't drink yeah. uh, someone who doesn't eat pork because yeah. of my religious inclinations so even if I got out So if I move clear. out to, with a group of colleagues who drink, yeah we can go to a bar, they' will take their beer, they will seem very happy. But because I know my values, I know my conviction as a Muslim, mm. I will not be uh, swayed into so getting a, a beer. Just because everybody around me is taking a beer, I'll but stick I, but to my I, but
0: I've, known, I've known Muslims who do occasionally have a little tot of whiskey or a bit of beer. I mean, come on, that ha- that happens, right? So it's not just about saying you're Muslim. There's also a, you know, you also do have quite a a, a clear set of principles and values around who you are. So that it's is more true. than just saying it's this religion. is my sort of mm. financial or class background or this is my religion. It's kind of feels like it's more.
1: Personal conviction, yeah, and also I think I give credit to my parents. They used to tell us when we were young that uh, don't try to be like others, be who you are, and it's always important to remember who you are in whatever you do. That, in a way, keeps you in check and uh, it reminds you to be responsible (coughs) and also to take charge of your affairs. But I'm also generally a cautious person because I look at myself, I I look at uh, uh, from what has happened in my life i look at myself as a, a, a person who is blessed by god and so i try to avoid abusing my position in a way that will compromise my potential tomorrow so um
0: so what, what do you mean say what you mean by that so uh, for example a in a way that... Uh,
1: for example i, I would not want to say like now in uganda concerning what i am now uh I mean, many things. I can do so many things. I can uh, choose to be lavish. I can uh, choose to have, for example, many women around me. Mm. I can choose to uh, to drink. I can. Uh, I, I mean, I can do so many things. Yeah. But I try to remind myself that I'm Abdul Salam Wiswa. These are my values. I I want to achieve this. Yeah. And I stick to my uh, my, my 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 objective in life. So yeah. It it keeps me it keeps me in check. It keeps me in check.
0: So while we've been talking about money, one thing that's interesting that I think would be would feel quite unusual to most people listening to this in the UK and elsewhere. So you you earn a lot of money now by the standards of Not a
1: lot really. <laughs> but by the
0: by, by the standards of what that small boy in Mayugi uh would judge you by. That right? is true. Mm-hmm. You've done really well, you've worked in big roles in the Ugandan government. Uh, you're, you know, you're a hotshot lawyer who tra- travels around the world on planes. Come on, like this is this is not the average Ugandan we're talking to
1: here. Uh, that is true. Um,
0: so that is all part of you, uh, and you know, you so you earn comparatively well by Ugandan standards. That and is you, true. You know, live in Kampala, you have your own house and so on. Um, but you don't. But you still don't have a huge disposable income because that money is also you use that money to support lots of other people so let's talk about that
1: mm, that's true, you know in Uganda we live in extended families and uh, we have this cultural, traditional uh, belief that your success is not just your success, it's success for the whole family mm. so uh, when, when I get money I look at it as money meant for me to survive on but also to help people around myself. Yeah. So for example I have 13 sisters and uh, 3 brothers uh, I have many uncles, aunties many of these didn't study well Many of these, some of them actually studied but are jobless or they didn't actually qualify enough so they can't compete for serious jobs and unfortunately many people in the rural villages they still look at having many kids as a it's also pride. Mm. So you'd find somebody who's jobless, who's just a farmer in the village, having 10 kids. Yeah. And many how, t- how
0: many nieces and nephews do you have? I have so many. Countless. You don't count them? I can't count. Wow. I
1: haven't counted because <laughs> there are so many. So you find every time you go to the village, you receive so many of the people coming to you. My child needs school fees. My child needs this and that. So you have your immediate family, your parents. For example, my dad and ma and mom are still alive. Yeah. They are in the village. So I take those as my primary responsibility mm. to make them happier than they were in their old days. Uh, so I've taken it on myself to ensure that I make their life relatively comfortable. Mm. Because, for example, like over six years ago, I bought for them a solar system. Yeah. So they are able now to have light in rural Uganda. For those who are watch, who are listening to this for the first time, Uganda is not fully covered by electricity. Yeah. So many parts of the country are still dark. So at night, people use kerosene uh, lanterns. Yeah, kerosene lamps. Yeah. And, and uh, they're in the dark. So what I did was to buy. Even
0: us when we lived there uh-huh, in uh, that is 2003 true. In, in our village, there was, was no there was no electricity, and there was also the the well where we would go and get uh-huh, water. Was... get water. It was like twenty minutes 20 down minutes down the hill, wasn't it? That's, <laughs> That's true.
1: So in my like. even in my village, we don't have power. So what I did to make my parents' life a little better was mm. to buy a solar system. Uh, I spent about uh, like five hundred dollars on it, and they installed it in the house. So now they're able to they have light nice. lighting in yeah. the house. Then about three years ago, I upgraded that solar system. It's now strong enough it can even sustain television. Yeah. So I bought for them a TV. Mm. I bought for them a satellite uh, receiver so they're able to watch TV from the comfort of their home and are living some average life, really. And then I try to ensure that at least every month I send them money yeah. to be able to uh, to have most of the best needs, food, uh, cooking oil, when they fall sick, i will I try as much as possible to take them to the best hospitals.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you know, that's the other thing with Uganda is that uh, talking about we're talking about you and not, and not often having to operate without a safety net, mm. and it's the same with healthcare, isn't it? I mean, it just isn't like an, an NHS kind of system like we have here. So if they get sick, then you need money to you need
1: the to money to take care of them, take
0: them to good hospitals and stuff.
1: That's true. Yeah. So all that tends to. It into your savings mm. but uh, for me I look at it also as a way of uh, getting blessings yeah. I look at uh, success as a result of people's prayer and uh, God is mercy so whenever you do something good for somebody they pray for you to get better and in the end, you find yourself actually getting more and more opportunities yeah. through which you get more money and mm. become happy.
0: And it's like a virtuous circle. Right? That the is The more it. you do, the more you feel like it attracts more uh-huh. so uh, it's luck to you and things like that.
1: That's true. And a believer will know that if you make your parents happy, then chances are high that God will also be happy with you, will bless you mm. and will open you to opportunities. I look at myself as a person who has been uh, lacking in many ways. And I don't think this has been uh, by mere coincidence. It's because of God's favour. Yeah. And it's only yeah. proper that I'm grateful by also helping my parents, helping my immediate family. So, and then uh, also... Uh,
0: as an atheist, of course, I would say... you, and, and also, as an atheist and also someone who knows you, I would say you make your own luck a lot. I mean, you are some... Like, well, I want to talk about um, deal-making in a few minutes, but I think that's... Um, yeah I think you have a big part to play in a lot of the luck that comes your way Uh, but I wanted to so your parents right so so it must give you a lot of satisfaction to think that their house now has solar it has a TV they're living a different kind of lifestyle to what they were living as a result of your hard work but I guess the other aspect of that must be that Because having lived in a Ugandan village, I know that what happens is everybody knows everybody else's business, right? So everyone would have come round to that house and they see the solar, they see the TV, they think, "Huh, someone's doing rather well. So you must have a lot of talk about you in the village because of the fact that you're providing that money for your parents and stuff. And does that lead you to have more requests? Like, is your phone ringing saying, oh, can you pay my... Daughter school fees and all that, all that kind of stuff.
1: I do that. actually. I receive many such calls, and also many of my old boys and girls. They most of them are struggling in the villages. When so you say old boys and girls, people I do? went with to school, like I in see, primary, right. yeah. in secondary, people dropped out of school. So you find they're married, they're struggling with their kids. Mm. So when they see you, they think you can sponsor their children in school. They think you can uh, take them to Kampala and give them jobs. So what I try to do is to, one, show them that, yes, in life, we can all become better in our situation. And I try to, whenever I can speak to those I meet, and say, look, for you to be successful, you don't need to come to Kampala but you just have to come up with a good strategy. Mm. If you are doing farming, ensure that you do it in a good way. If you are married, just try to avoid having many kids like (laughs) another person. If you're a young man, you don't need to have five women. You try to be responsible. (laughs) And uh, so that uh, in a way, I try to build their capacity. And also, I don't give them the impression that I'm available to give them financial handouts. yeah. because I can't I mean I have many other people that I'm directly responsible for so I cannot take on another person's burden uh, Wait, so,
0: so when you say that you have many people that you're responsible for like already?
1: Yes I have my own wife I have yeah. my own uh, immediate family members I have my own brothers, my own sisters yeah. who I feel more directly uh, obliged to help than So yes. for example
0: right now how many people would you be paying school fees for?
1: At the moment, I pay school fees for about uh, six kids. Yeah. And most of these are cousins, nephews, uh, uh, nieces like that. Some of them are orphans. Yeah. So uh, I try to do that. I'm glad many of them have now finished school. Yeah. So they're also getting employed and also helping others. Because I believe when you educate somebody in a family... You make that person a source of success in that other family. So then
0: you've got somebody else who can share that burden uh-huh. with you of, of helping to pay for the next people that, that and whatever. So it's, it really is. I mean, what's interesting is that I think in England we have less of an obvious uh, kind of structure of social climbing in that way, right? Mm. So I think maybe there's a there's probably a bigger gap for you guys in Uganda between the ones in the, wel- the well paid jobs and the ones who are in poverty whereas we probably have like maybe through the welfare system and various other things like it just feels like there's less of a embedded. It, it, it feels like whatever steps it feels like however well you do actually in a career in England you probably mm. just go one or two more steps up the ladder but you can really you, like with a jetpack propel yourself to a much higher place than where you came from which I think is harder to do mm. in England as well which is maybe the paradox of the whole thing But, yeah, it feels like if you do start to achieve success, then you've got this real responsibility to use that wisely and to to try and sort of pull people up. That's true. uh, Along with you kind of thing.
1: And so what I also try to do is to create uh, small businesses Mm. through which I can employ people and then give them uh, a source of livelihood. Yeah. That instead of giving this person money, I've given them a job. So they move from the village, they go and work at my small... Uh, maybe business yeah. that way you give them a salary and then they use that salary to feed their family they're happy, they won't run for to you for money because they're working for you and so uh, I try to, to diversify my activities
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that then because I was going to talk about your main job but let's talk about the side hustles first so you have a number of different businesses and things that you either do or have done at That's different points alongside... Nice. full-time work so mm-hmm. maybe just like, maybe just give us a list of what some of those businesses are because <laughs> they're quite diverse
1: yeah that's true uh, at first I I began with the motorbikes Border borders, yeah. they're called border borders. By the the word border border is now in the Oxford dictionary. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it's an English word. So, border
0: border mean. means frontier to frontier, doesn't it? Frontier Swinili, to frontier. So it's, the, it's the idea of being on the back of a motorbike and that being a taxi. service uh-huh. from one place to another, basically,
1: Canada. is what it means. Yeah, so I remember when I just finished, well, before I finished university, I bought a border border. Mm. And the idea was to put it in my village. That I can get one of the boys around to ride it.
0: So you're providing employment for one person, and then also it's bringing in income Income. to pay for the investment. So the
1: money from the monthly money would bring, it would give it to my parents to survive on, and then any balance to deposit on my account. Mm. Uh, That did some work for me for about a year. Unfortunately, the boys I was using, some of them were not trustworthy, Mm. so they wouldn't bring the money. And in the end, I ended up. I sold it. I sold it, and that's the other challenge. Sometimes the people we give our businesses yeah. are not good enough and honest enough to, 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 to use them properly. Yeah. After that, uh, I opened up a restaurant. Uh, one of my brothers did catering, and another sister did catering. So what I did was to open up a catering business in Kampala, in Kavala Gala. Kavala Gala is that very busy center where as Bar is oh, uh, okay. located. So I got some small uh, room there where I opened up a restaurant and instead of hiring random people I went and picked my brother my sister, some mm. other cousin put them in the restaurant uh, they would cook normal food, sell it and it was working 24-7, day and night wow. so it, it was a very busy place, unfortunately they also didn't manage it well enough so after about a year, the business collapsed.
0: Because I remember coming to visit you in your current house in Kampala and just finding, we walked in one room and it was just full of like chairs and tables. Uh, and I was absolutely. like, what's this? And That's you were like, true. oh, I was just running a restaurant for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea. That, you that is that.
1: true. So that was the restaurant. <laughs> so after my people man- mismanaging it, it didn't work out well. So I decided to close it because they were now exposed me to paying rent, the yeah. business could no longer sustain itself.
0: And did you lose money on it? You that? end up
1: losing money. Yeah. So what I did was to close it. I picked the office furniture, I mean the restaurant uh, equipment and material, brought it home, sold. And yeah. then uh, I closed that business. Mm. So uh, I thought, uh, I took some time after that. I began reflecting, because uh, I've learned that uh, businesses if you are not directly managing it yourself or through your wife, it's not easier for you to succeed. Yeah. So from then, I learned that uh, for me to start in a business, I must, it must be one where I can easily supervise or have a mechanism of knowing how it is working or directly have my wife or myself supervise it. Yeah. So that's exactly what I did. And then uh, about 20, about three years ago I bought some land on auction and that land uh, is in a fairly a busy place it's neighbor's the school it's near it's in Kireka and so what I decided instead of keeping that land empty because I didn't have enough money to develop it I decided to open it up into a parking yeah, a car washing a car Which wash car park and, car park wash and washing place, yeah. yeah and so I went Picked my cousins, my boys from the village who are idle. I brought them there to manage the place. Mm. I fenced it all properly, and then uh, I also besides that car parking, I also opened up a football uh, show business where like people can go watch Premier League, Champions League. And I used the same TV that I bought in London the other time.
0: Yeah. So when you came to <laughs> visit me in London, what was that? Four 2013, years ago. Twenty thirteen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, I remember we went to Sainsbury's in Whitechapel, and your eyes lit up when you started seeing the prices of the TVs in there.
1: That's true. Because
0: I think it's just a case of, you know, we just buy a lot more TVs in the UK because it's all it's all imported, isn't it, from Jap- Japan and all these other places. But but there's probably just such a bigger volume in the UK that it drives the prices down. Whereas the same TV in Uganda would cost you like twice as much. Or twice something. as much, yeah. Yeah. So we ended up. Uh, I still have the photo somewhere of <laughs> you pushing your bags on the trolley at Heathrow with this huge TV <laughs> barely <laughs> fitting inch. through the doors. A 42-inch TV. So you had that TV at home, and then you started using that TV as basically a football watching business so people pay to pay an entrance fee to, to watch Premier League games That's true. in a little suburb in Kampala which is just so as someone who goes to watch well not too many Premier League games these days with Aston Villa having been relegated but like obviously go to watch this football the idea that there's these people paying you know, paying a few shillings here and there to sit and watch a Premier League game thousands of miles away. It's kind of, it's really a really bizarre thing to oh, Premier League has conquered. Premier League is so huge in Uganda. Well. It
1: has conquered the whole of uh, Africa. It's just, boys are addicted to the Premier League. Yeah. And now it is getting fused with the betting business. Yeah, so there are people yeah. who are no longer working. They just sit, watch games, and, and bet. And then bet on the games, yeah. uh, And it's uh, it's uh, some it's 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 good and bad. Yeah. Because it's encouraging uh, encouraging people to be lazy. Because of course, betting is not uh, any job that anybody would depend on. <laughs> but then many people now are are preferring betting to form employment.
0: Especially the year Lesser City won everything, right? It, mm, it must so have been like p- 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 know, p- yeah. people were losing those bets for a while. I'm that sure. is true. But yeah, so you got your so the so the football watching um, business. I guess it's like a football cinema, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's like football uh, mini cinema. You had chickens. Yeah, I've also had chickens. Uh, at, how, many,
0: how many chickens did you
1: have? Uh, I began with two hundred birds. Yeah. I sold those, <laughs> then I restocked with three hundred. Yeah. Then uh, the last time I stocked, I had five hundred. Krayler chickens, yeah, and uh, this was all in my backyard.
0: So, you had 500 chickens in your backyard, yeah, and producing eggs and producing then...
1: eggs, selling them, and yes, it was and then a... selling,
0: selling, the, chicks selling well. the chicks, yeah.
1: So, it was a good business. So, every weekend, what I would do was to go and dr- buy chicken feeds. Hmm. Uh, in fact, that influenced my decision to buy a Ford Ranger <laughs> so that I don't have to incur transport costs, right? So, I would okay. just drive the same car. Trophies, yeah. but also load it with chicken feeds. So I would go to the villages, load my chicken feeds, bring store at home, take to the grinding meals, prepare the feeds for my chicken. Yeah. And it was uh, very good. It worked out well for me on that of course I suspended it for now because uh, the chicken feeds were becoming quite expensive yeah. and so it wasn't making a lot of economic sense. So I for now put it aside as I watch the chicken feed prices going down.
0: Yeah, so yeah. at the moment you've got the, the football thing and you've got the car parking and car washing thing? That's true. Do you have any other businesses
1: at the moment? Uh, I have a company, a former one, called Salam Associates. Yeah. Now that is managed by my wife. Basically that business does business consultants, uh, mainly debt collection, uh, security perfection, and uh, security, d- security perfection. Like perfection. when What's that? when people go to borrow from financial institutions, yeah. they get loan, they get mortgages, they get they pledge their motor vehicle logbooks as security. I see. So they instruct our firm to do registration of the banks or the lenders' interest onto their securities. So, for example, if you go to bar to borrow from. Say Lloyd's Bank. Mm. Lloyd's Bank would instruct us to go and register its interest onto your freehold yeah. title or onto your log your car logbook. Right. So we do that business, and that is basically done by my wife. Yeah, she employs about four other people, uh, more, and all of them are relatives.
0: And are you involved in? I mean, obviously, part of that business is masterminded by the fact that you studied law and that is you true. had a lot of. Well, come onto your. Day jobs in a minute, but you know a lot of your day job stuff has been around insolvency and debt collection, debt collection. And kind of that area of law, right? That so, is true. So, how how involved do you need to be with some of those day to day decisions in that business? Like, has, does Sarah just run that now, or are you more involved than in that?
1: What I've done is to prepare and train Sarah. She's not a lawyer, but she's a quick learner. Yeah. So, uh, in the initial years, I because I think I started that in twenty fourteen. Uh, at that time, I had a brother who was studying law. I was paying for to study law mm. at the Islamic University in Uganda. So I started it with him. Yeah. and having been a law student, he had quite yeah, he knew what to do. so I trained him, he got his way and uh, he began running the business. but then later on he he chose to go to Dubai to work, right So he abandoned the company. So now, in order not to close the company, I had to bring in Sarah. Mm. I trained her. She wa- she also had a good attitude really. She was interested in learning. So I would train her, teach her, show her the basics on the processes and she picked up very fast, quite fast. She now runs the business basically on her own. Yeah. She only calls yeah. me if indeed she needs she has a legal issue to ask me. But most of the documents involved uh normal documents. Yeah, it's like so pretty standard. I stuff, give yeah. her the templates. I give. I tell her what each document does, when it is used, and introduce her to the client. So for me, what I do is to look for business. Yeah. I use my connections, knowing people, having worked with some of them in different capacities. I call them up, bid for jobs. Once we get a bid, then my then Sarah mm. uh, does the work with the people yeah. we use. And yeah, it is keeping her busy because uh, I, at the moment that's all she does. And she's happier than someone who works in a five to seven, uh, seven to, uh, to, to to five o'clock job. Yeah. Mm.
0: Although she used to work at Nile Breweries. Yeah. I'm, she, I'm sad that she stopped that job because I thought she could get me free Nile special. <laughs> yeah. She did last time I was. Yeah, seeing, she
1: did. She, it was a good job for her. Oh, yeah. But, you know, when she got pregnant the last time in 2013, she was quite sickly and yeah. uh, the job wasn't uh, uh, flexible enough to allow her time to rest. And uh,
0: so my uh, sister, my sister's coming to say hi. My house is pretty busy at the moment. I've got uh, Abdu staying here, and also I have my sister and uh, her husband and two kids all all staying in our three bedroom house. So I'm actually sleeping in the shed for a couple of days, which is which is fine.
1: Yeah, grandma's been a very good host to all of us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we were, we're talking, about, talking about Sarah and running that business. So let's talk about your. Nine to five stuff as opposed to your five till nine and you know seven till 9 a.m. stuff and all that. So, your, your nine to five job so you've moved now and you're doing you're basically the head legal person of the equivalent of Ofcom, is yeah. probably the best way to describe it, isn't it? But your previous job used to really fascinate me. So, you were basically uh, well, you can explain what, what you explain your previous job with the Ugandan government.
1: Ah, my previous job I was a manager debt collection in the legal department of the Uganda Revenue Authority, which is like the HRS. Yeah, like FMC, HMRC kind of thing. yeah. And uh, basically my job entailed entitled collecting taxes from the non-compliant taxpayers. Yeah. And so whoever would not pay taxes as required by law, their cases would be referred to my office uh, for further management. And this would mean... Further management. <laughs> and this would mean... Me pulling the legal strings to ensure yeah. that whoever has not paid the taxes paid. And uh, the law generally gives the Uganda Revenue Authority a lot of power in terms of tax collection. So we could do quite a lot of stuff, including closing people's businesses, mm. uh, issuing travel bans, stop people from traveling out of the country, attaching people's assets, yeah. selling them, auctioning them in order to recover the taxes. So I did that for four years. And I'm glad to say it was a nice experience, but also sometimes exposing. Because uh, during that time, I literally cross-line with most of the big shots in the business and government circles in the country. uh, Because, you know, many big people don't want to pay taxes. (laughs) And I think it's a common trend across the world. It's painful to pay taxes. (laughs) Now in Uganda, it is even more because, I mean, people don't see so much of their money uh, making a difference in their lives. Right, so yeah,
0: because I suppose the other thing just to, which I can say more easily than you can say on a podcast is that <laughs> what I see a lot is that, yeah, people in Uganda pay taxes, but a lot of that money is... Uh, Ugandans would say eaten, uh, which is a way of saying corruption just puts it into the trouser pockets of certain people. Uh, so a lot of that money that is supposedly for... Uh, education and you know, care, healthcare, and all these section. things, it doesn't get to where it needs to get to. I remember um, uh, it's often with the schools that we were working uh, in when I was in Uganda, and then and having been back to some schools since then, they are promised a certain amount of money per pupil to fund mm. the schools, and what they get is you know a quarter of that or half of that, and a lot of that money is just kind of you know it out of the system along the way. So I guess. It's painful for anybody paying taxes, but it's a lot less painful if you can see that it's making the country better and, it, and you can see that you're getting benefits from yeah, uh, from the money that you're paying in taxation, which I think maybe is just less the case in,
1: in, Uganda, in Uganda and than Africa. So because of that, most people will not voluntarily want to pay taxes. They will mm. try to evade. So the process of unearthing all that and causing people to pay, uh, especially in a forceful way, that would sometimes involve attaching somebody's big car, yeah. attaching somebody's house, uh, stopping somebody from leaving the country, just to force them to pay taxes. It was a hard job. It was a hard job.
0: Um, tell us about Jose Camillion.
1: Uh, Jose Chameleon is a big pop star artist in Uganda. And not just Uganda, East Africa. So even Russia.
0: when I was in Uganda, he was the biggest name, right? He he is the, up sort of now he's a big legendary. We went to a few of his, his big shows in Gampala and Jinja and stuff.
1: That's true. So he had, uh, through his businesses, accumulated a tax debt of about $40 million, And he had been evading and eluding the system. Mm. He would not come up whenever called up for meetings. He was not paying on time. He would make promises that he would pay the next day. He doesn't show up. And all the people around him were protective of him. Mm. So when the case came to me... So
0: he's got an entourage of managers and uh, promoters uh, and whatever, and they're all saying, oh, he's going to pay, but then that's it. the money wasn't coming in. And
1: they all feel like he's too big yeah. to be enforced against by anybody. <laughs> so I told him that if we don't pay, we'll do this and that, and they didn't seem to care. <laughs> so he organized a very big show in Kampala that everybody was looking forward to. So I told this promoter that if he does not pay, then he won't sing. <laughs> we would allow other people to sing.
0: So you are going to shut down the show, yeah, sure. basically. Uh, How would you do that? So you would turn up with bailiffs and... Yeah, we would
1: turn up with bailiffs, with the police, yeah. and prevent... Like lock the gates of the, the place. Lock the gates so that, yeah. and prevent right. anybody wow. from getting in, and even the artists from performing.
0: Yeah, so that's so, quite a big threat
1: it's a big threat so we told him that about two weeks before the show Yeah, he thought it was a joke <laughs> so about three four days before the event I told his promoter that uh, if he does not come and pay the show won't happen Yeah. so the promoter
0: how many people were going to be at the
1: show many people could get uh, like like 10,000 right, people at okay. the show so this
0: is big this is big news in Kampala yeah, and, you're, it, and you're then about to pull the plug
1: on it that is true so Towards, like a day before the, the event, uh, his promoter told me that, okay, he had lined up about 30 artists to perform. Mm. And uh, since my, for him, the promoter, he was tax compliant. But Jose Ma- Chameleon was not. Mm. And the show was not exclusively for Joseph, Cam- for right, Joseph okay. Chameleon. Yeah. The promoter made a case, which I found quite good. That okay,
0: yeah, you've got to have some sympathy with that, uh, right? Like this poor guy is trying to,
1: and he had invested in a show, lot of least, money, yeah. promoting adverts, paying. I mean, he had spent a lot of money on the show, so I compromised by agreeing that okay, we allow the show, but we will not allow Chameleon to perform. Mm. So, Chameleon, of course, didn't want that to happen. He turned up at the show, we said okay, if you've come, we're not going to sing. And we are taking your assets, we are yeah. taking your cars He drives very huge cars in the city yeah. And are all personalized with his name So we told him, we are taking your cars <laughs> And you're not going to sing And then he began threatening, saying I know everybody I'm going to call the president, I'm going to call the minister I'm going to call your, your, your boss, who are all my fans yeah. <laughs> So I told him, okay, you call all of them And tell them that I'm stopping you <laughs> because you're not paying taxes that won't be reason for them to sack me because I'm doing my job. They'll be happy that I'm doing my job. That's you also job said
0: to me that you said, to, you had a conversation with him where you said, I'm a fan of yours, but yeah. now I'm at work. That is right? true.
1: I told him that. I told him, Chameleon, I love your music. I'm your fan. But now I'm on duty. Yeah. I'm on duty. So let us separate the two. You're a big star. We are your fans. But mm. we must also do our job. So my child want you to sing and we are happy to enjoy your music, we must also do our job. So you must cooperate with us if you are to do what you are supposed to do. So after that, he ended up yielding to our pressure. He gave up, he surrendered two of his cars, Mm. and uh, we drove the cars, parked them at the offices as a compromise position. We told him, you can now go ahead and sing, but ensure that you pay your taxes within a week. If you don't pay, we shall advertise the cars yeah. and auction them. <laughs> and indeed, when after parking the car two days later. He came, paid all the money, and released the cars. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody was happy about it.
0: So that was that one. And then there was another one where you... There was a bus company in Kampala, which is, I guess, probably the equivalent to so you shut down this bus company i'm just trying to think in london what the equivalent of that would be it would be like shutting down three or four of the tube lines or something
1: yeah, that's Th- true. these
0: are buses that take everybody to work it's a you know i mean kampala a very congested city city but shutting down a bus service in a city like kampala must cause absolute mayhem
1: that is true so
0: you so you took all the buses away
1: yeah, we took all the buses <laughs> away because you know this company had been operating for some time and they didn't want to pay taxes. Yeah, we had engaged them so many times; they were not moved by our discussions, <laughs> and they were not making any tangible promises to pay. So we thought the only way we could get them to comply was if we stopped their business. Yeah, you know, enforcement is not sometimes just about getting the money paid, but creating an impact mm. and also showing some that actually you can bait them if you yeah. don't comply. And this being a, this having been a very big campaign, many people thought they were untouchable. Many people thought nobody could do anything against them. So we did a lot of engagements. We told them how inconvenient they would feel if we enforced against them. They thought we were joking. So we... Woke up one morning, got the warrant, got the clearance from police and then we went where those buses park and we rounded up the whole place and no bus was allowed so out. So you
0: just put locks on the gates and had bailiffs protect it and then it's what? none of those buses can actually leave Leave town. To that it. is it.
1: Yeah. So we thought that was a better strategy than getting the buses off the roads because yeah. we didn't want to paralyze the city and cause uh, fights with the passengers, yeah. innocent <laughs> passengers. And a good thing before the event we had, the, the bus campaign had gone public, gone on TV, threatening not to do anything, telling the public to ignore our threats. So we told them, okay, if we don't pay by this debt, yeah. we shall enforce against the bus company. So the public knew, and indeed the public was waiting to see if indeed we can it. <laughs> and as a public body, that was a test, because if we had just yielded the their threats and yeah. not yeah. done anything then they would have looked at us as a, as a truthless dog
0: so yeah so part of that is about collecting the tax but also part of it as you say is about creating the impression and it's like propaganda in a way isn't it it's that creating is the impression that actually we are serious we're going to follow up on these things that is but true. I guess for those four years when you're doing that job your, you know, your face is on TV in some of these news items where they're talking about the chameleon concert and the buses and all this kind of stuff. So people kind of know your face around a bit That's true. from that. And you're also presumably making not enemies, but you're not going to be the most popular person with a lot of the most wealthy and, and powerful people in, in Uganda. Right, right true. So that's quite a difficult position for you. It and was.
1: I... It was a difficult one, especially because many people used to look at me as a young man. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, ordinarily people would think that for you to do such a job, you must be very old, you must yeah. be very big. And now here comes a young man, uh, little known really, and is telling the rich men, yeah. the popular guys <laughs> around the city, do this if you don't do this I'll do that but for me I had my strength that one I knew what the law provided so whatever we were doing was within the law in fact I'm happy to say that within that four years I did a lot of work I collected a lot of money Uh, my unit and my department collected so much money more than ever before Mm. and uh, even internally I was voted employee of the year by my employer many times Mm, I had the backing from my bosses, I had the support from all of them. And the public also loved what we used to do. Because before that, there was a culture that uh, you could avoid paying taxes and nobody would mm. do anything. So I felt like we needed to change that attitude and prove to the public that the government can work and the public should have trust in the systems. So in a way, it created, many people thought I was the bad guy but also many people felt that I was actually working well. And uh,
0: But also your style with those things is, it seems to me to be, you're the baby-faced assassin, right? So you look quite young <laughs> and you're always smiling and you're always very personable with people. That's true. But right. then the message you're delivering is Strong. harsh and really aggressive often in terms of the action that you're willing to take and stuff. That is true. So do you think... Is, is that something that was a key to your success in that role is this sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing of being on the one hand this really charming slightly sweet and innocent kind of persona and then on the other hand being the really aggressive
1: it actually worked a lot for me because uh, <laughs> it helped me to moderate Yeah, people wouldn't look at me as a bad person because whoever would come to me with a problem I would try to find a solution I would try to find a solution I would give default has a chance to pay mm. before I would take any action I would first give people time I would try to suggest ways through which they could pay in an installments. Yeah. and by the time I would recommend this kind of forceful action, that would be the last resort. And in most cases I would do that after I'm sure that legally speaking we are covered yeah. so this person cannot sue me yeah. cannot sue the institution and even if they did, they would lose yeah. and lead, during the four years only two people sued the institution and all their cases were dismissed mm. and the rest most times would handle issues well amicably and even after the enforcement surprisingly most of my defaulters would become friends yeah. for example even for yeah. Uh after that he became a friend, he would have shows and would send me complimentary
0: And I would go and watch the shows. <laughs> so, so so after that, you sent your VIP tickets. Yeah, that's situation. very yeah. true.
1: And I would tell people that uh, for me, when I enforce the it's not like I'm fighting a yeah. personal battle. Yeah. I'm doing a national job. So separate the official person from the person. For sure. And uh, that in a way, also the approach, the way I would speak to people would be, friendly. I wouldn't shout at people. Mm. I wouldn't abuse people. I wouldn't insult them. No, no, no. Because in my mind, I know that defaulting on a tax obligation is not the worst offense somebody can commit. Yeah. So because of that, yeah. I would treat people with uh, mm, with respect and also advise them on how they can legally yeah. go around the system and deal with the issues. Sure. And that helped me so much that I never had a serious threat from anybody. And many people used to think I was under threat. In fact, my employers recommended I'm given guards.
0: So, so your boss at one point said, we can either give you a gun to have in your house or give you a guard to hang outside your house 24-7. That's,
1: That's true. So
0: and you chose the guard, right? I told I, think, the, I think you texted me and said which one should I do? And I was like, dude, stay far away from you being the person to hold the gun. Right? That is like, true. You're better off having somebody else. But that's frightening.
1: It is. It was. It frightened
0: me when you texted me, thinking, God, that's a, you know, you're in a spot there.
1: Hey, that is true. So my bosses thought that uh, it was better for me to get uh, security yeah. or at least get uh, protection uh, with a gun.
0: So you had what well, did you have like two guys uh, so,
1: uh, yes I had two police officers yeah,
0: and 24-7
1: uh, 24-7 but then later on uh, we discovered that a soldier a soldier is better than two police officers ok so, so they sent a soldier they sent a soldier and uh, wow. so <laughs> uh, there, there would be a soldier at my home Uh, they also gave me the option of having to move with one like when I'm around town but I said no that's not necessary for me I'm a young man I want to live freely I I don't think I'm under threat and indeed there was no problem at all throughout that time nobody tried to beat me or to attack me but there was this general fear that I wasn't safe
0: and this um, so in terms of the, the work that you would do day to day uh, around, particularly around that job, and then also the work that you do with your side hustles, your other businesses, all that sort of stuff, strikes me that one of, the th- one of the things that's very consistent through all of that is your ability to make deals. I just feel like that's something that you do very well, you're very comfortable with negotiating, making deals, making things happen like that. What did you learn through doing that job where you're making deals with often in fraught circumstances like the bus isn't going to run or the chameleon pop show is not going to happen or whatever so there's these big things at stake mm-hmm. and you're making these, these big deals these big decisions what did you learn through that job about how to make deals and you know, how, what motivates people in those situations when you're negotiating?
1: I, I think for me I learned many things but one of the key ones is that uh, you must when, before you go for a negotiation you must know what you want
0: mm-hmm. out of
1: the deal. So that you know if this person has defaulted, what you want is them to pay. Yeah. How they pay it is another issue. But at the end of the day, you must come up with a solution that causes that person to pay in the best way.
0: And say if the say if the debt is forty million shillings, do you have a little conversation with yourself in a way to say I want to get at least twenty? Or, I want to get a commitment to 20 over installments. You know, do you have a kind of a, co- a sort of compromise middle position that you have yeah, in mind?
1: That is true, because usually I would be guided by the law, because the law and the policies in the organization would provide that a, a defaulter could be entitled to pay taxes over a period of time. Mm. So, I would work out uh, some kind of schedule and say, okay, if I can get this person to pay so much within this period of time, then the balance we can give them time Mm. and uh, also aware of the fact that at that time uh, as the manager debt collection I didn't have any powers to forgive anybody so you can't exempt somebody from not you
0: you, you couldn't do what they do in London financial institutions which is these sweetheart deals where they say okay you owe 60 million but just pay 30 and we'll be grateful for 30 Uh so you didn't have the power I didn't
1: have those powers in fact under the Ugandan legal regime only the Minister for Finance can do that. Mm. And it's a very long process before you can get a waiver. Yeah. So because of that, I would be very clear right from the start that this is what the law says, this is what we are going to do, so that I prepare the other person that this we have to play within this. Yeah. I wouldn't set the expectation so high because naturally, most people would come to you saying, can't you forgive us this? Mm. Can't you reduce this from 100 billion to 20 billion? So I would be very clear. I would tell them, this is the law. My mandate is to collect. Only the minister can forgive you. And this is the process through which the minister can forgive you. So given the circumstances here, you are not eligible for forever. So we can only talk about how you can pay, but not whether you will pay.
0: Yeah. What about um, corruption and bribery in those circumstances? So obviously, you know, some of those people, their next thought would be, well, if the minister can forgive me, let me go and talk to the minister and maybe... Chuck the minister a little bit of money in a brown envelope or something and uh, and deal with it that way. Did you did you have people approach you saying, "Here's some money."
1: That's can right. Write yourself, a, like, can I used you
0: to do something different off the books, kind of thing.
1: That was a very very common thing. I dealt with it many times. Many mm-hmm. people would come and say, "Of course, people would think you're doing that because you want a bribe. People would think because you're a young man, if they offered you money, you would easily." Mm-hmm. Uh, agree and uh, forget all about the official claim you have against them. But I try to make myself very clear that for me it's not just about the bribe. I'm doing a job. Mm. And I also try to make everybody around me aware that for me I wasn't in that job because I'm looking for bribes, because I'm uh, looking for money. So most people used to come to me knowing that they would not just suggest a bribe. And whoever would suggest I would dismiss it Clearly. Yeah. And so I wouldn't yeah. give them an impression.
0: So you'd never entertain even the thought of that. It uh-huh. just be straight sort of down the line like, okay, this is not a conversation I can even
1: That is start true. So have. many people would uh, want to meet you outside office, they mm. want to meet you in hotels, they want to send your colleagues to negotiate those deals. But I would just make my point very clear that I'm doing a national job. I'm a young man. I'm building a profile. I will not taint it because of some little money. Because I guess,
0: you know, I mean, even though some of those bribes could be life-changing sums of money, if you get caught doing that, then your your entire career is over. So regardless of the moral issues involved, there's a huge risk.
1: It's a huge risk. It's a huge risk. But
0: were you ever tempted? Were Were there situations where it was so big that you just thought, Jesus, I could just take this once and I'd never have to work again, sort of thing. Like, did those situations arise?
1: Yes, I used to have a number of such situations. Somebody would say, we'll give you so much, we'll give you a percentage of this. And sometimes you look at the figures they're talking about as huge. Mm. But what I tried to do was to dismiss such discussions at the earliest. Yeah. So when somebody gives me indication that they're proposing a bribe, I will not even wait into the discussion of yeah. how much... Because if you give somebody a chance to discuss with you how much they can pay, then it's like you are opening the floodgates.
0: And they see the weakness there. They see the weakness. They, yeah. And
1: yeah. then also, Kampala is a small town. Yeah. Uh, you accept a bribe from one person while you go around it, Ah, May I give him only mm. $10 million, $100 million? So that will become your price. Yeah. And no, in no time, everybody will know that I should have given you a bribe. Mm. And that can disorganize you which of course happens
0: I don't know you know I don't know people in Kampala in in that situation but you know from times I've spent in places like India as well you know you get these uh, actually one of the things in India is for the middle classes in India if it's if they're talking about the aspirations of what they want their kids to do for a job they they never say I want them to be an entrepreneur or they want them to be a lawyer or whatever they always say I want them to have a government job you know a civil service job and the reason is okay the, the Uh, the civil service job gives you a salary but it also gives you the platform and the position to accept bribes and it's Mm -hmm. kind of so endemic in the system that it becomes actually the height of ambition is to have those jobs for that reason and stuff so that must happen and so I I wonder whether part of your uh, ability to keep away from those temptations comes back to what we're talking about at the beginning which is you knowing yourself and knowing okay, that's me, I'm the small boy from Miyugi, this is what I'm aiming for, I'm trying to get my profile.
1: That is true. So for me, that would keep me in check. Uh, I know even many of my colleagues would say, you take that money, eat money, this and that. But I would try to keep myself focused. And sometimes I would have to disregard everybody around me and just do what is right. Uh, Of course, sometimes if you don't get to, to know that yourself, and you rely on what your colleagues are telling you, you can easily be exposed. Because at the end of the day, if you accept a bribe, it won't be your brother, it won't be your friend, it won't be, it will be you that they'll come for. Mm. And there are so many people that have been arrested and prosecuted in Uganda uh, for corruption. And People have been sentenced to ten years, fifteen years. I know how much time that is. It's too much. by the time you get released from uh, the prison cells, the world has left
0: you. <laughs> you've
1: lost everything that yeah. you thought you were working yeah. for. So for me, I feel like you'd rather earn one million now than get a hundred million today, and tomorrow you are arrested mm. and you have no profile at all. yeah, so it's not easy, certainly, because we have so many competing needs and you find that the salaries you're getting. not the best that you can possibly get but it all comes to content are you satisfied with what you're doing and also to remember that you're not in that job just to make quick money but one to make a difference in your society but also to create a brand for yourself yeah I believe you can become a brand in yourself Mm. that people look for you and uh, one thing will lead to another. I'll tell you for a fact that even my current job at the interview panel, I found three people, but two of them, and they were enforced against them.
0: You'd enforce against them? Yes, I'd enforce them. They're against... sitting on the interview panel. Now they were for the sitting on the yeah.
1: interview panel for the new job. So when I walked into the room and I found their faces, I saw their faces, I said, wow. This is now going to turn against me. Because most people you'd <laughs> think that because you have closed their business, because you've caused them to pay huge sums of money mm. in taxes, they have something against you. So when they see you appearing before them for an interview, they will try to use that against you. But I just try to make myself very clear that one, I was doing my job professionally, I did it, and luckily I had not mistreated any of them. Yeah. I did not ask for a bribe from any of them. I had handled them professionally. So, basing on that, I'm sure they were impressed and they thought that I could actually be even better in my new role. So
0: They probably had an ulterior motive for not wanting you to be the person collecting their taxes. So <laughs> someone might do it less effectively. But also, I guess it shows that, uh, you know, what what price can you put on reputation, right? So That's it. Your reputation is so much more valuable than any so. bribe you might take or any... Uh, you know, uh, difficult relationship that you might leave behind there, that then comes back to haunt you on the interview panel, kind of
1: thing. That that's very true.
0: Yeah. Um, just before we finish, uh, so I, yeah, I was also just going to say, I'm really glad that my friend no longer has to ha- does a job where he has to have a guard outside his house with a gun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's quite nice to to think that you're not in that slightly uh, precarious situation, but. Um, so you moved on to into this new job. So just before you finish, I'm interested to hear what you uh, think about when you look ahead and how you view happiness and success. What what does what does success mean to you?
1: Success to me means having a, a reputation and uh, being able to take care of your affairs in a comfortable way. So that entails one having financial muscles mm. to take care of your affairs you're able to have a comfortable life you can drive a good car you sleep in a good house you take care of your people but also you have a reputation mm. you freely move in the city you go for meetings and people know oh Salam has come and people will take your word as as something good something that they can rely on that to me that is success so
0: that's like the biggest asset to build up, isn't it, is your reputation? Your reputation. Yeah, I think that's reputation. huge. Um, and what are the things that hold you back? So are there things that disrupt you from being productive or stop you from achieving the things you want to achieve?
1: Mm, for me, uh, yeah, there are a few issues, certainly, but uh, I look at some of those in limiting factors. Sometimes as opportunities. The community around you sometimes... Uh, The people we associate with sometimes may not share the same vision with you. So when you try to do something, they might say, ah, but that's not good, that's not good enough for you. So even, for example, when I was changing the job, not everybody around me approved of the change Mm. because many people thought that the job I was doing was the best job anybody could get. But I told them, no, look, I'm a lawyer. I want to do something more in my line of my career. Yeah. and indeed when I made that decision luckily most people that are closer to me my wife, my immediate family after explained to them what this new role would be they are already supportive but there are these are the friends who don't know so much about you or what it is that you do what it is that you're going through but they want to impose their opinions on you and luckily that over the years I've learned how to deal with such issues I will stay focused <laughs> I only consult people that matter to me Not everybody, I mean, not every noises around should be heard.
0: Which also brings us back to the beginning, which is that whole thing of knowing yourself, being single-minded and determined. And uh, I think that's something that I think you just continue to do.
1: It's important. It's important in life. I mean, if it's like when you're looking for, when you're dating, looking for a wife, I mean, if you try to ask for consensus from everybody around you, whether or not this is the best woman or not, you'll never get consensus. (laughs) Because, I mean, it's you. You know this person. You know this person, not your brother, not your uncle, not your friend. You know, so the decision has to be taken by you. And also, when you take that decision yourself, you are able to own up. You know that this is my decision. Mm. I must defend it. I must see it succeed. So it is important for people to always remember that you can seek advice from people around you but ultimately the decision must be taken by you and you must only take a decision if you think you can defend it, if you think it is for your uh, for your own good.
0: Indeed uh, I think that's a really good point to, to finish on. I often ask people at the end where can they find you on the internet and stuff but you're not on like Facebook and stuff like that. Should we put your you're on LinkedIn aren't you?
1: I'm on LinkedIn, yes, but Should we put
0: your LinkedIn um, uh, the link to your uh, LinkedIn account on on the show notes for this so that if someone wants to contact you they can find you that way? That, I that I think
1: that, I think that's better. That is okay. Because you avoid Twitter and Facebook and all that. I stuff. try to avoid Twitter and uh, Facebook because yeah. I think they are abused. <laughs> they are good but they're abused by people. You see so many comments there and then sometimes you will make a comment in your personal capacity as Abdus Salaam, but somebody will pick it up and try to use it as an official position. Yet, I mean, as a government official, I mean, you have limits. You have limits. You would uh, think that you shouldn't be actually uh, answerable for. And then some comments should be attributed to you as a person, not your employer or your government. (laughs) So that's why I prefer being private. And uh, I think all the social media platform I use is WhatsApp.
0: Yeah, yeah, which ones. I've noticed a lot over the last few days with your, your tablet. <laughs> yeah. So we'll put your LinkedIn thing on there if people want to uh, get hold of you and say hi, particularly if they're, uh, if they're, I guess, if they're anywhere near Uganda or if they have, uh, you know, similar lines of work around uh, communication and debt collection and all those kind of
1: Insolvency things. Insolvency
0: issues. So, so when I first started Beyond Busy a couple of years ago, you were, I think you were probably on my list of the first... 20 or 30 people to uh to talk to and so i was probably thinking if you weren't coming to england i would have come to uganda at some point to uh, interview because i think you're the first african person we've had on beyond busy uh but yeah i just knew you would have some interesting stories and perspectives to share and all of that so so thank you for being on beyond busy
1: Nah, thank you very much it's a pleasure being hosted there and just also to emphasize that uh, I wrote a book on uh, oh, yeah, cop- <laughs> copying, copying, copying from you my ma. Always, always thinking <laughs> I-, I also wrote a book on uh, fundamentals of commercial in Uganda <laughs> and at the moment uh, I do a lot of uh, lectures yeah. uh, to people around in universities in Uganda and actually East Africa I've done a couple of trainings in Rwanda specifically nice. on uh, law Uh, on insolvency issues, and many times I'm called to train uh, on uh, issues of uh, leadership, to train on issues of negotiation, uh, on uh, issues of uh, managing people, and I'm available, I'm available to always (laughs) offer lectures about uh, such kind of things.
0: Love it. So, Abdi, thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy, and you're going off to London now, and then uh, flying back on Saturday, right?
1: Yeah, flying back on Saturday.
0: So, give my regards to Sarah and Kampala and all of that. And uh, it's been a real pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that's it for my conversation with Abdu. That was just such a special one to record. I hope you found that as stimulating and interesting as I did uh, just recording it. Um, obviously, having known Abdu a long time, uh just really added to... Uh, the sense of that being just a really important conversation to have as part of this whole project. So I hope you enjoyed that one. I love the fact that he managed to get in the plug for his book at the end as well. He might be thousands of miles from home and on holiday, but still totally professional at all times. Love that. Uh, So as I said before, I've been on the road a fair bit and away. And I'm in this kind of weird fallow period now where I've got couple of weeks before I get back to some work in September. I already got a couple of keynotes and bits and pieces sort of lined up in September. So uh, looking like it's going to be quite an interesting and quite busy month. And it would be interesting to know what my perspective is on just the notion of busy. I feel like I've had this sabbatical period that these last few months uh, to really get beyond busy, like in terms of my headspace. And really, I, I kind of think about busy in quite a different way now. And, um, yeah, it would be interesting to see how much of that stays with me from the sabbatical period and how much of it just as soon as you have three weeks of chaos, does it just completely all degenerate and, you, you know, you sort of revert back to type. I don't know. We'll see. Let's see how that goes. Um, also, if you're in Toronto or anywhere near Toronto, uh, I'm going to be in town the week uh, commencing the 19th of September. So that uh, so 18th of September is the Monday. I think I get there Monday night. Uh, But I'm there Tuesday to Friday for sure, the 19th to 22nd of September. So if you're anywhere near Toronto, if you fancy uh, just popping into Toronto to say hi, uh, let me know. I've got a couple of things planned during the daytimes, a couple of other things that might land, but definitely got some time to say hi to some beyond busy listeners. So, yeah, drop me a line, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Yeah, let's sort that out. Let's, uh, Let's say hi. Uh, and finally, just to say that the, the work of Think Productive continues uh, our ninjas traveling around the UK and around the world, delivering workshops, helping your your team members to get their inboxes to zero, to make meetings magic and to become productivity ninjas. So if that is of interest, uh, check out thinkproductive.com, thinkproductive.co.uk and if you want to find out more about this podcast if you go to getbeyondbusy.com, uh, getbeyondbusy.com you'll find out a load more info uh, just generally links to all the previous episodes and also show notes for this show with abdu as well and um, so that's getbeyondbusy.com. dot uh, and say hi on twitter and other places so um, at graham alcott on twitter and also at think productive on twitter if you want to say hi to the think productive team as well Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Beyond Busy. And until then, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I enjoyed making it. I'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye for now.